Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. friends. It's Beth. Sarah had a fun idea of releasing an extended version of the Great Redhead Debate, where we give you the episode as we did on Tuesday, but also sprinkle in some commentary, some thoughts that we all had afterwards. So you'll hear the debate again, and you'll also hear thoughts from Sarah, Dante, and me throughout. So we hope that you enjoy this. Let us know if this is something that you'd like us to do more of. And we appreciate you listening, as always. This is a special episode of Pantsu Politics. Welcome to the Great Redhead Debate. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hey guys, welcome to the Great Redhead Debate. Uh, this is Dante, and I am going to be moderating our our debate tonight between uh, the candidacies of Sarah Holland and Beth Silvers. So just to give you guys a little bit of background, we took questions from listeners on Twitter, on Facebook, and in my email. Uh, we decided on some pre, pre-discussed topics and some pre-discussed questions, so we're going to mix them up as we go along. 
and it, this should be fun. So we're going to treat it just like a real debate between the two candidates and see where we stand, where we on certain issues, where we agree, where we differ, and you know where we can move forward on a lot of issues that we've been discussing throughout season two and even before that. So we're going to begin by doing our opening statements. So we're going to allow the incumbent party to open first. So Sarah, would you like to give your opening remarks? Of course. So this is Sarah from the left. And as some of you know, I'm an eighth generation Kentuckian. And about seven years ago, I left my home in the big city to because my beloved red state called me home. And I'm running for Paducah City Commission because my small hometown is my passion, and I believe that city government can help it thrive for decades to come. And I say all that because I want to acknowledge the nuance of this small-town girl dedicated to her red state arguing for the party of big government. So I'm a lifelong Democrat, proud Democrat, and I know that it sounds really good to say that we should always keep government small, and there are many ways in which that works well. But... There are some things that need the power and the authority of the federal government. The right to marry, the right to fair and equal treatment, the right to clean air and water. And in our current situation, the truth is that state government officials are often not very responsive to the people. They are not often challenged. Most people can't even name their state representatives. And so we have a situation in which we'd all like to believe that small government is more responsive But unfortunately, because of our current media environment, it isn't always. And we have too much at risk for so many people in states with maybe not the resources to meet their needs or to make sure their rights are being met. So, you know, that's one of the small reasons that I'm a Democrat. And I hope that we can explore the roles um, of government more fully in this debate. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Beth, you want to go ahead and kick us off with your opening statements? It's such a privilege to be here with my friend Sarah and with Dante to discuss our visions for America going forward. I'm Beth from the right, and my experience is all in the private sector. I'm a lawyer. I'm a business executive. And I bring to this position at this moment in our history a strong belief in servant leadership. I think we often expect our presidential candidates to offer a big, bold vision for America, My big, bold vision is that I don't necessarily have one. What I have is a passion for supporting the big, bold visions of others. I believe in empowering our state governments to do what they do best, and I believe in getting our Congress working again. When I think about America today, what limits our potential most is the dysfunction that we have in Washington. So I commit to you that during my first 100 days in office, I'll spend time in small groups with every single member of Congress, getting to know people and asking them how they plan to serve their country this year and how I can help. It's my belief that the executive function of the United States is leadership and that I can best exercise that leadership through relationships, good communication, and humility. So I'm looking forward, as Sarah alluded to, to talking more about the role of government and specific topics and how we think we can get our government working for you again during this debate. And I hope that I'll have your support in the hiring process that we're coming upon in November. So I think the opening statements reinforce a theme that you hear in the show, but I feel like it's even more prominent in this episode, which is Sarah identifies really strongly with the Democratic Party. 
And I sort of loosely identify with the Republican Party. I think I have a respect for traditional Republican principles, but I don't view myself necessarily as part of the Republican Party and certainly not as a voice for the Republican Party in forums like this. So um, I, I thought that our opening statements and how we approached that, we didn't discuss it beforehand. I think it was very authentic to each of us and how we feel about our respective parties. Awesome. Thank you both. And I think one of the best ways to get started is with some questions on the economy. Um, it's a, you know, it's a topic that's at the forefront of, I think, a lot of voters' minds. And so we can get started with some news that we learned last week. Um, it was reported last week that median household income rose by 5.6% to $56,516. That's 1.6 lower than the pre-recession levels uh, measured in 2007, and just 2.4% below an all-time recorded high in 1999. Similarly, poverty rates have dropped from 14.8% to 13.5%, and 2.4 million American workers gained full-time employment in 2015. So despite these marked increases, what would you say as a candidate to voters who still feel left behind by the gains that have been made? And where are special areas that you think our economy is lagging behind? And Sarah, I'll give you first crack at this answer. So I would say that they their feelings are correct. They're, the numbers don't lie. I would like to take a moment, you know, as a Democrat to to lean on the successes. And before we get talking about the people that have been left behind, there are huge populations portions of the population that are recovering under the policies of Barack Obama. So I think that that's something that sort of can't get missed in this discussion. There are policies that work, um, but there are they don't work for everybody. And that's because our current economy, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, is complicated. And I don't really think anybody knows the solution to, you know, the the lagging of rural America after the Great Recession. I think that both parties um, have a sort of reminiscence and we all want to get back to where every town was propped up by one factory or one industry. And I think we need to abandon that fantasy. Like I say, you know, change is hard, but time travel is impossible. And I don't think we're going to go back there. You know, I sort of don't talk enough about the economic policies of my own hometown, which brought in artists and offered dilapidated properties and buildings to these artists for a dollar. And now we have a thriving arts district, which can sometimes seem sort of by itself. But the truth is that it's a part of the thriving economy in Paducah. And it might not um, fit the vision of quote unquote industry that we want supporting the town, but we need to be adaptable and we need to think, well, maybe it won't be a factory. Maybe it'll be a small community of artists and they'll be responsible for 30%. And maybe the other 30% will be work at home people that are using the internet to make a living. And so I think that rural economies, part of the problem is we need to move on from the vision of that we had in the 50s and 60s. So I think that moving on and abandoning that sort of, that, Ideal, ideal, idyllic vision and adapting to our new and changing economy in any way we can is best. Beth, do you have a response? 
I agree with a lot of what we just heard from Sarah. I think that nostalgia is not a strategy. I think that while we have made significant gains in the economy, people don't live out averages. So there are certainly people who feel disenfranchised, who feel like this economic news bears no resemblance to their lives. And we have a huge amount of work to do, not just to catch up those rural communities, but you know, the world keeps turning. Technology mm-hmm. keeps changing. We need to be getting toward the future instead of trying to catch up to what we believe is the present in parts of America and not parts of others. I think we're lagging behind in our strategies on poverty, on tax policy, on infrastructure, on drug policy, on regulatory frameworks. We have a ton of work to do to make the American economic engine hum again in a way that benefits everyone. And can I have a quick response? Sure. It always takes me a while to warm up in debates or any sort of, um, even our episodes, and I feel like this debate is no different. I had to get my feet underneath me. I think that the other, you know, the other nuanced answer is it's an economic problem that we can explain through economic numbers, but the solution will not be wholly economic. And a lot of these towns, because of, you know, something Beth alluded to, drug problems, a lack of education, a culture of poverty, even if we rolled in and plunked in the biggest car plant this side of the Mississippi, it wouldn't matter. You know, we have bigger problems here than just a simple, you know, economic infusion could fix. And so until we acknowledge that and really deal with those problems on the ground, and they're not, it's it's different, whatever town we're talking about, whatever state we're in, we're not going to find, you know, maybe the biggest, the biggest answer is stop looking for a silver bullet to fix this. Well, to piggyback off that, you know, may, you know, obviously you both just illustrated some points that, that give a lot of complexity to this issue, but let's talk about jobs that we actually have on the table. Um, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, we currently have as many as 5.6 million job openings, yet for every four workers in skilled trades that retire or leave the workforce, only one is entering. And outstanding student loan debt has risen to $1.3 trillion. So the problem has been characterized as the skills gap. What would you do as a candidate to reframe the conversation on vocational education and skilled trades and help stimulate the economy to fill these necessary yet underrepresented jobs? And Beth, I'll give you first crack at this answer. I think it's really important that we talk more about that. I think our language hasn't caught up with our reality in terms of what job openings are out there. And I think using the the pulpit, if you will, of the presidency to talk more about these openings and the kinds of skills that are needed and the opportunities that are ahead for these career paths is really important. I think it's really important to work with state governors to talk about restrictive legislation that makes people wonder about licensing requirements. I think a lot of people avoid expensive educations because then they don't see mobility state to state in those educations. We're asking for a lot of commitment up front in terms of dollars and hard work and time away from family and children for people to acquire skills that then they find out can't transfer across state lines. And we've got to solve that problem. I think we've got to solve the rising cost of education problem. And that conversation has to extend beyond student loans and interest on student loans. You know, I think that we're trying with this topic, much like healthcare, to cure the symptom instead of the disease. And the rising cost of education is the disease here that we've really got to get our arms around. And that's going to take a lot of work um, at the community level, at the state level, and at the federal level. We've got to do a better job being transparent about universities. What are you really getting for those dollars? How can we implement a system that is as simple as the calorie count on your soda, you know, to help people understand and really compare prices among universities? Um, How can we help people 
ferret out their opportunity cost of attending college versus what might happen to them on the other side. So we have a lot of work to do in this area, but I think it's exciting and good work and a lot of opportunity ahead of us. Sarah, would you like to respond? Yeah, I think that our education system, and I understand why in theory we want this sort of equal opportunity, one size fits all, and I'm talking about particularly pre-college, but I don't think it's serving us anymore. I don't think the idea that every child walks straight through this path from K through 12 and then goes to college or doesn't, I, I just, it's not considering our capability of handling data and input. We're not doing a good job of tailoring the experience to the realistic needs of that child or that family or that area of the country. And, you know, I... I don't think that this is, you know, an area in which I think the role of the presidency and the federal government is to support those on the ground, you know, doing what they're doing instead of as particularly teachers. Um, because I think that right now our system, like I said, our system is just a little bit one size fits all in a world that is far from that. Well, you know, I, I think we kind of, veered off topic a little bit um, in terms of, you know, I think we talked a lot about about education and the value of education, but would there be a policy that either of you would employ specifically that would that would address or either uh, mobilize companies or voters to get to fill these vacated jobs for skilled trades, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's stipends for vocational training or whether it's a it's a federal outreach program for skilled trade, um, is there something on the table that you would do to specifically address the jobs and the vacancies that we have right now? I'll leave I'll leave either of you open to answer that if you'd like. Well, I'll say that I think this is an opportunity that is ripe for a public-private partnership. I think it would be very interesting to convene a group of, you know corporations with interest in filling these positions that are struggling to do so along with educators. I think that the best use of the federal government here is to be a thought leader. I don't think there's a specific federal policy that addresses this, but I certainly think we should put the muscle of our uh, federal government's you know, thought leadership kind of think tank quality together with the private sector to see what kind of solutions we can come up with. So I'm going to push back so ever so slightly on that because these people have a lot of money already invested in this process. And there's a part of me that thinks like if thought leadership could solve this, I'm sure they would have solved it. Like, I mean, I feel like the, if these industry leaders are so desperate for workers, then the issue isn't just, you know, desire. You know, I think that what we need clearly and perhaps from the federal government is some real dollars put behind, put behind this problem and either loan forgiveness or um, and I'm not I'm not rejecting the idea of a private public partnership, but I think private public partnerships work well, too, when you can put the the might of the federal government behind them and say um, motivate states either through funding dollars or matching grants to say, OK, look, this is the problem we're trying to solve. If you want this money, you need to figure out how to solve it, either through what sort of what Beth was mentioning, like the licensing changes but, you know, I think that with regards to the industry, I, I, t to me, there's a part of me that's like, well, I'm sure industry sort of is doing what they're capable of doing at this point, And it's not getting us there because they got they want to make a profit. So they're motivated. 
Um, for, for sure. And and what you know what we've noticed is just a is a lack of qualified workers. It's mm-hmm. you know so I think I think the problem needs to be addressed from from getting people qualified. Um, because if they can I just, respond, yeah, go ahead. So I think the only thing I would disagree with about what Sarah said is that the the first step to me is convening people from a variety of industries who have the same problem. I do think industry trade groups are working on these problems individually, but they're kind of doing so in vacuums, right? So I think what the government could bring to the table on the thought leadership side is convening a multitude of industries, because this isn't just about uh, skilled labor and technology jobs. This is about nurses, too. And I think that if we just come up with a federal policy, student loan credit or or debt forgiveness, something like that, we're going to be a solution in search of a problem instead of being driven by exactly what the problem is. Maybe it's unique to each of those industries, but let's share some ideas, let's share some best practices, and then identify the best way that federal and state and local governments can be supportive of what um, of filling these highly skilled jobs. Oh, this section gives me so much sympathy for candidates because there's so many things about the economy that I wanted to talk about in this debate, and we just couldn't get there because of time. So I'm going to save all my thoughts on tax policy and infrastructure for later, but I really relate to how people feel when they walk off the stage and think, I didn't get my best message across. Sure. Well, we kind of had one foot on base of education there, so I'm going to um, move over and ask a few education questions. This question was uh, submitted by uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew V. We had multiple Andrews submit questions, so this is from Andrew V. And it says, should, policy, should public policy support families, particularly low-income families, so that they can attend a school of choice, regardless of whether it is public or private? Um, and uh, Beth, I think you have throughout uh, throughout season two talked about school choice on a number of occasions. So, um, would you like to answer this question first? My answer is yes. It's unequivocally yes. I think that choice in education is a critical factor in lots of areas. I think it will make education a more attractive field for bright minds who could be great teachers for us. I think it helps. Um, resolve some economic disparities in our school systems. And just fundamentally, you know, I'm a believer in choice. That's part of why I'm a Republican. I don't think our options should be dictated. I think that if public school is the best option for everyone worked, it would be working much better than it is now. So in my view, this is a no-brainer, helping helping children attend the schools that their families believe are best for them and being able to change that decision as the child changes over the course of the child's life is critically important. Under, under your presidency, what what model would be set forth? What would that look like? Um, what from a from a state perspective, county perspective, um, how would you go about spearheading the the form in which school choice would exist under? I think this is an area where the president and congressional delegation should work with governors because I don't think we should have a federal program dictating exactly how this works because the options are different state to state, right? The populations are different state to state. I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all model. I think each state individually ought to be looking at things like scholarship tax credits, charter school programs. There are a lot of ways to tackle this. I don't think that we can best do that from Washington, D.C., but again, I think we can provide some leadership and some support 
support and sharing of best best practices state to state to give people ideas and information about what's working and what isn't. The best thing I can think that we can do at the federal level is start to take some pressure off of our public schools and give them space to compete better with these options that are emerging. Because right now, I think we hamstring our public school system by outcome, you know, performance-based outcomes that don't really take into account the differences in our children and the differences in what they're equipped to learn and what our teachers are equipped to do in each one of those schools. Sarah, would you like to chime in on the issue of school choice? Oh, yes, I would. Um, So I think that my biggest problem with this is choice is something that other, that people are trying. And it's not like it's been just hugely successful. There have been huge problems with charter schools from outright fraud with people's schools closing midway through the year to, you know, smaller problems where kids just aren't getting the education they need. So I would like, you know, I like the idea. I just said the education system shouldn't be one size fits all. So it's not that I don't like the idea of an adaptable system in which children and families have more choice depending on their children's needs. I think that's great. I think using public dollars with private companies to try to offer that is not the right way to go. For me, because I believe that the power of the federal government in assuring fundamental rights is sort of how real fundamental change happens. For me, the biggest problem with, you know, the school system with regards to choice is, you know, we have a Supreme Court decision in San Antonio Independent School versus Rodriguez that says education is not a fundamental right. And so to me, like, we're trying to build all these haphazard changes, including charter schools, on a foundation that is not steady. Because we as a country have not decided that this is something we want to assure every child. Because our Supreme Court said it wasn't a fundamental right. So until we get that solved, until we figure out what we really want every child to have, I just feel like charter schools are a band-aid. Beth, do you have a rebuttal to that? I don't think charter schools are the only solution. I think pretending that charter schools are the only educational environments in which abuse is happening is um, divorced from reality. I think there are plenty of problems in our public school system, too, and I don't see our public officials doing a great job policing those environments either. So, I, you know, we're not going to have a perfect solution, but I think more choice is a way to start to get there because for too long, public schools have had a monopoly and we've had very little accountability imposed on those schools in terms of how they're spending dollars. I also think, look, we don't we've got to give our public schools a fighting chance as well. We don't properly fund our public schools today. And that's an issue. So I think that's an area where we would find common ground. But I think as we try to lift our public schools up, the best way to do it is by ensuring that they have healthy competition from other options that might be more appropriate for some children as well. Can I have a quick 30 second rebuttal, please? Yes, Is that allowed? (laughs) So I think, you know, we're sort of talking about the same thing. To me, because it's not assured as a fundamental right, we almost, I won't call it choice, but she's right. You know, I don't think it's right that depending on where you live, the public school can be atrocious or prepare you for Harvard. That's not fair. That's not what America is about. I feel like the summary of this debate could be no system works like it was supposed to in the 20th century and we need to start over and create a new one for the 21st. 
And what my fear is, is unless we assure this as a fundamental right on a national level and decide what we're actually talking about, we're going to keep going down this road in which every school system, public, charter, whatever, is just out there figuring it out for themselves. And we don't. And so, like I said, it's just not to me, it's un-American that depending on where you live, your child can get a great education that prepares them for Harvard or a terrible education. And that's I, I don't see how charter schools, either, it hasn't begun to solve that and continuing to try it. I mean, to me, it's just we have bigger problems. Well, speaking of bigger problems, uh, choice or not, public or private, uh, the Learning Policy Institute uh, released a study last week that said that the U.S. is experiencing a teacher shortage crisis. Thousands of unfilled jobs in states like Oklahoma, Florida, and Arizona are being filled with temporarily credentialed teachers and emergency hires. The shortages are especially present in areas of need like special ed, math, and science, and they disproportionately impact low-income students of color. As president, what would you do from a federal level to help get qualified teachers back into classrooms? Sarah, I'll let you take this one first. So I started reading a little bit about this, and they're having similar problems in Britain. And the issue, I don't think, I think when I first read it, what I wanted to think was, oh, well, we don't have enough people choosing to be teachers. And that's not really what's going on. We have people that choose to be teachers and are like, this isn't worth it. I'm leaving. And so I think that the issue to getting teachers and keeping teachers is obviously paying them more and doing a better job of not asking them to be all things to every child in a room full of, oh, I don't know, 25 to 30 kids. It's where, you know, we're asking them to be superhuman and we're not paying them very much to do it. And teachers need more support and better pay. And, you know, again, we have a shaky foundation our education system is built on. And this teacher shortage is another symptom. And so until we figure out the fact that this is the, that we don't have an education system built for the 21st century, we're going to keep having problems like this. Beth, would you like to respond? I agree that retention is a bigger challenge than recruitment. I think that makes the salary issue a little bit of a red herring, although I certainly agree that we don't pay our teachers well enough. I think part of it is the enormous gap between the investment in your own education required to teach and what's waiting for you on the other side of it. And that's why I think debt forgiveness programs are very important for teachers. But beyond that, we've got to make this a better job. It is a national embarrassment to me that teachers have to sell magazines and cookies to get technology and curriculum needs funded in their classrooms. We should You should not have to be a marketing professional in addition to a math teacher, to have a sixth-grade classroom that works well. And that's what we're doing right now. Uh, Fundraising is a huge component of teaching, and it shouldn't be. We should promote more school environments. I do think school choice is a part of that so that teachers can find different types of environments to work in. Some of those environments deal with discipline quite differently than others. And there are people who go to school because they're passionate about a subject, but they're not passionate about character development. And they need an environment where discipline is going to be taken off their plate so they can focus on their substantive skill. And then I think, again, we have to change our philosophy about education and how we evaluate teachers. I think we treat teachers like factory workers in that when we, when we assign these testing standards to them, it's like we've given them all different inputs and asked them for the same output. That's not good for our children. It's not good for our teachers. It has to be enormously frustrating. Well, while we're on the topic of education, we have a question that was submitted by Debbie. 
Um, and the question is, the role of safe spaces in education. Does the, do safe spaces help move education forward or do they help make students less educated? Sarah, you want to take this topic? Dang, didn't I start last time? Okay. Um, I think it's, you know, it's really interesting. We had a listener the other day that was talking that her definition of PC was like exactly opposite of what I thought it was. And so, so I, that tells me that we're, we're all talking about different things when we talk about safe spaces and trigger warnings and PC. So I don't think that safe spaces, I guess, I guess my first thing is we have to say, what, what are we talking about? Do I think that we need places in which everyone can function without being disagreed with? Uh, of course not. I went to a liberal arts college. No. But do I think that in a, is there a place in an educational setting to say certain opinions will not be tolerated? I don't, I don't really subscribe to every opinion's okay. I just don't. I think some opinions are purely harmful and wrong and need to be shut down in any setting, including an education setting. That includes, you know, overt misogyny, intense white supremacy, you know. And it's not that I think that, you know, they should cease to exist. But if you want a space on campus, not the entire campus, I guess, but that where you say, look, we're not going to tolerate that, then I think that's fine. Deplorable stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. In the basket. <laughs> Take it. Keep it in the basket. We don't want it anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Beth, do you have a response to the safe space issue? I think rather than focusing on safe spaces in our colleges, we would be better served by focusing on emotional health and well-being in our elementary schools. You know, my five-year-old attends a fantastic public school that does the Leader in Me curriculum. She comes home talking about kindness and respect and being a good leader and putting first things first. You know, she is learning all kinds of coping skills and ways to express herself while respecting people around her in kindergarten. And I think that's the place to get this done because if we start looking at emotional health and well-being early on, we won't need safe spaces when people get to college. They'll be able to have these exchanges of ideas and they should have them. They should have heated exchanges of ideas. You should be pushed every single day in college or I don't know what you're paying for. Um, so I, I think that this conversation has kind of gotten off track. I think that we have created a little bit of a monster in colleges. I think we've um, multiplied that monster by the the public getting involved in this debate over safe spaces. But but for today, if I were a university president, I would certainly be handling this as the University of Chicago has by saying, look, you're going to be challenged here. Uh, we'll be supportive of you. We don't want you to be harassed. There's a difference between being challenged and harassed. And I think it's important to preserve that distinction. But my focus really would be on earlier education. Let's just let's figure out how to be human beings again in these discussions. And then we won't need, you know, a place with pillows and coloring books to kind of decompress when you've been pushed hard. I actually wish I'd pushed back on this a little bit more than I did. Um, one, because I don't really like the way University of Chicago is handling it, too, because clearly Beth hates coloring books and we need to address this issue. Well, what what do you make of, of politicians and, and their role, especially presidents and their role of of fostering an environment where where mudslinging is is diminished, where name calling is diminished, so safe spaces, or the PC culture kind of that that is dis destructed by the examples that a presidential candidate might set 
in holding a spirited but fair and clean uh, campaign. I don't think there's going to be much debate here, but we can try. Moderating really isn't as... I thought it would be sort of easy to guide this discussion and just go question to question and, and throw it to Sarah and throw it to Beth, but it's really a lot more difficult than I imagined it to be, whether I had multiple screens open with my questions and sort of this like choose your own adventure style that I had put together of, all right, well, if the answers lead here, then we'll bring in this question from a listener. If we get stuck there, then we'll switch. I was trying to manage the time on the answers and also my own questions that I'd prepared. So it was it was tough. I, was, I felt like I had um, a few balls in the air the entire time. Um, trying to, you know, manage the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. The president's role is to be a leader in all ways and including showing kindness to people he or she disagrees with. I agree with that. You know, I, I would want to be a president that we could all be proud of. Every time I come to a microphone, every time I sit in the Oval Office, and even as I go to sleep at night in the White House, I, I want people to feel that I'm honest and transparent and fair and generous and kind and graceful with my opponents. I think that's what's required in the White House, and I think anything less is unacceptable. And I think it's not just the White House. We shouldn't have senators or representatives or governors or city council members um, that we expect anything less of. In summary, cut it up, y'all. <laughs> Keep it nuanced. Um, so let's move on to healthcare. Uh, we have a listener submitted question from Aaron S. Uh, Aaron with an A, um, and he asks, "Do you support paid family leave? And if so, how would you introduce that policy into our workforce?" Uh, Beth, you've spoken a lot about the complexities of trying to put forth a federal policy for paid family leave. Uh, so I'd like to ask you first what your thoughts are on this topic. The first thing that I'd like us to talk about is the fact that our current discussions on paid family leave still seem to me to be extremely limited and and to not recognize the epidemic that we have around care in families right now. So in addition to talking about leave surrounding the birth of a child, I think we need to be talking about leave surrounding adoptions. I think we need to be talking about elder care, which is going to be an enormous issue. Um, it's already becoming that and is only going to become a larger one. I think we need to be talking about families that look different than the families that we are accustomed to seeing today. Um, we shouldn't write policies that have mom and dad in them anymore. There's just there's a breadth of experience happening. And if we want to create policies that are focused on children and on recipients of care, I mean, we, we should be thinking about people with disability who require care for their entire lifespan as well. That's why I think um, as flashy and fun and exciting as it would be to adopt a standard federal policy around family leave, that policy would not be inclusive enough. And so we've got to work with our industries to come up with something and maybe that has a component of federal funding. Maybe it works a little bit like unemployment insurance where people are paying in so that they can take out later. But we've got to think more broadly than the discussion that we're having right now. And I just I absolutely support people having space in their lives for time off that is paid to care for people and their families. But I think we need to do that very, very carefully. And the entire burden of that should not be on private industry. 
Sarah, would you like to respond? Oh, yes, I would. So this, the more I think about it, is an area I have passionate disagreement with Beth. I believe that, like she does, that the gender wage gap exists because we do not value care in our country. Because we have a system, an education system, including that, you know, kids getting off at 2 p.m. Under the idea that there is somebody at home taking care of the kids, which is not the world we live in anymore. And there seems to be this sort of undercurrent in our society of, well, you chose to have kids. I did. You're right. And so, but that is something that is beneficial to our country. So as America, if we believe that we value families and we value caregiving, then this is the perfect situation in which we need the power of the federal government to enforce these values. Because leaving it up to private industry is not going to create more better solutions. It's going to be where we are with schools, where some people in California have great paid, what's already the situation. Some people in federal government have in California have some paid leave and I have nothing. You know, it's also the idea that maybe people all exist within private industry. You know, I work for myself, you know, small businesses or freelancers. I mean, what are they in a gig economy in which more and more people are freelancers? What are these people supposed to do? You know, we need paid leave from the federal government. I don't know if that looks like universal income so that we cover elder care, so we cover some, so that that sort of everything gets swept in. But I wholeheartedly agree with Rebecca Tracer when she came on our show. If we leave this up to industry, we're going to see a bigger and bigger gap with people at the top as their industries decide to get on board um, getting these benefits and particularly people at the bottom and low income people or low to middle income people being left behind and they're suffering and their children suffering and it's gone on too far if our country values families and caregiving then we all need to step up and put our money where our mouth is beth your response Let me be clear, Sarah, I'm not saying that there is no role for a public solution here, but I'm saying that it can't be an exclusively public solution because I think any exclusively public solution will necessarily ignore whole swaths of people, will necessarily necessarily be limiting to the people who can receive that benefit, and could disproportionately impact certain industries. Now, I think that we are We're in a situation right now when we talk about paid family leave where we think the federal government can solve a problem without a full and fair understanding of that problem. You know, I don't want an employer to look at someone if we have a federal leave policy that burdens employers significantly. I don't want an employer to look at someone and think you're a candidate for leave, so I'm better off not hiring you. That's where I think we go off the tracks here. So again, I'm not saying there's no public role. I'm saying we need to be very careful about what that public role is. And I don't think that we've done that work yet. The policies that I hear are just passionate. We've got a problem. We need to solve it. Let's do something. We have a problem. We need to solve it. Let's do the right thing and let's take our time to do that. Um, well, you pre- you previously said that that you know the paid family leave would have an expanded role under your president under your presidency to include more you know to include a larger breadth of what that means. So analyzing somebody as a candidate w- for leave wouldn't every potential hire be a candidate for leave in that? See, situation? I think that's a bad. 
I think that's a better situation than what I'm hearing from people who just want paid family leave around the birth of children, right? Because I think that policy makes you look at women and say, is it worth hiring this woman or not? I think if we can blow it out and have something that everyone's contributing to that's really a win-win solution for employers and for families, even for freelancers, right? So maybe it is a system where we're all paying in as we're earning income and then we start to take out. I agree that we need to think very broadly about this. But I think if we come up with something where everyone can think, there's a moment in my life when I'm going to need this, we're going to have much more consensus and much less backlash around it. Family leave is a hard conversation for me, and I think it demonstrates how much I would rely on a team of people if I were ever in elected office. That's how I work in my professional life, and it's definitely how I would approach public service. I feel like there are guiding principles that I would bring to this analysis, but I really need a team to flesh out how do we take these principles and turn them into an idea that really has legs. Okay, my rebuttal is never mind. We agree because that's what I want. I don't want employer-based. That I don't want. I don't want more employer-based benefits. No, no, that only gets us in trouble. I want a broad system in which we all say, okay, we we're paying. We'll pay in so that everybody gets these benefits when they need them or whatever. I want a big. I'm thinking real big here. So yeah, never mind. We're not even disagreeing. There you go. First, our first maybe co-sponsored policy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. All right, well, we're going to kind of piggyback off of that question because uh, the the discussion around paid family leave often leads us to a uh, discussion of women in the workforce and, and women's issues in government. So this is a question from Sierra, and it says, what are some of the most undercovered or underrepresented problems affecting women from a government perspective, and how would you help address them? And I'll leave that open for either either of you to take first crack. I want you all to know that we did not know most of these questions were coming. So we knew the general topics, but we didn't know any specific questions beyond one question within each topic. So a lot of this took us by surprise, which I'm happy about because I think it gave me much more compassion for the people who debate in real life and much, much more compassion for the staffs who help them prepare because it's it's a pretty daunting challenge to feel like I've got to be ready to field anything on any topic. So my answer, Sierra, thank you for the question, is that our drug policy, I think, is not seen as a women's issue. And I think it disproportionately affects women because of the number of men sitting in prison over minor drug offenses, leaving women to bear the full economic and emotional responsibility of caring for children and maintaining a family. I think the war on drugs has been a miserable failure. I think anytime we declare war on something within our own country, we're failing. You know, we have to find a new approach to drug policy that really puts families first. That's the opposite of what we're doing today. We have to understand drug use as symptomatic of people who feel disconnected from their communities. People feel um, limited in their economic options. And I think that we have to do the very hard work to make drugs an unattractive rather than an unavailable option. And I think that doing that would be the single biggest item we could we could achieve to help women that is that we're not currently talking about as a woman's issue today. Sarah, do you have uh, an underrepresented or under uh, under talked about? Well, oh, that's a stupid way to say that. An, underrepresent, <laughs> an underrepresented uh, woman's issue that you'd like to bring to the table. Well, I mean, women are human beings, so I think any issue that touches a human being is going to touch a woman's lives. I mean, I think for me, I think I thought about the question in a sort of a different way, and. The one of the biggest issues for me and women in government is the underrepresentation of women in government. So until we have women in leadership roles from the very top down and the very bottom up, um, whatever underrepresented issue is just by definition underrepresented because there aren't women at the table saying, oh, but wait, what about this? Or, you know, I don't think it's an accident that the women on the Foreign um, Armed Services Committee are the ones who push so hard to deal with sexual assault in the military. You need women around the table. When you have homogeneous people around the table, you get homogeneous solutions. And so every issue, women or otherwise, or you know, the pers- uniquely female perspective is going to get lost if you don't have women sitting around the table. To, to ask you a follow-up question there, um, so your, your answer is sort of 
underrepresented issues are are best solved with more representation. Um, what would you help do maybe to from a federal level or at a state level to help empower more women to run? Because um, it's not necessarily always a problem of of women not getting elected, but it's it's women not choosing to run and put their hat in the ring. I mean, if I'm waving a magical wand, I'm passing the ERA, and maybe we could have some sort of, uh, I mean, Iraq has better, like, they have it written into their constitution, you have to have, like, a certain amount of female representation, so if I'm just, you know, I'm totally in charge, maybe I'm thinking really big, like, something like that, but I think, you know, with the with regards to female representation, truthfully, the leadership that a president could provide would be at the party level would say be as the party leader saying okay we have a new priority and the priority is electing women and putting our you know we have a lot of independent organizations helping to do this but they could do a lot more with the power of the political party behind them beth would you like to respond i think more women will want to be in elections when our elections are better I think when our discourse is elevated, more women are going to want to be part of it. I think right now a lot of women don't throw their hats in the ring because it is an ugly process. And it's a process made uglier by the gendered way that we talk about female candidates in the media, by the coverage and the questions that people receive. So I think organizations like Ultraviolet, who are out there doing the work to raise attention to the way women are characterized in the media for the things that female politicians have to put up with, are really helping move us forward in this area. So I I think we just have to keep moving forward. I think as voters, we have to be more engaged. When when we are treating our politics with the seriousness that our politics deserve, I think we'll have a plethora of women involved. Women want leadership positions. You see it in the private sector all the time. We just have to, um, we have to stop the ugliness. And I think we'll see a lot more women emerge to, on the stage. Can I have a quick rebuttal? Yes, you may. I don't think that the only issue is that women don't want to run for office. I think that there are a lot of structural um, roadblocks, and I think that there are societal um, messages that keep us from running. And not just that the the that the debate is ugly, but that we're told um, that you know the messages that women are told about parenting and about their value as wives and mothers, and that. Um, you know, you have to be one, not, not to mention just sort of the, the, the messaging we get about being employees. You need to be a hundred percent employee and a hundred percent great parent. And that's 200% and that's more than anybody has. So I, I don't think it's just that women are holding themselves back for, because of their own internal struggles. I think that there are external messages in our society with regards to women in leadership that we also need to deal with. Um, we're going to switch to some commander-in-chief duties, so we're going to talk, take a couple of questions on foreign policy. Um, this question is from Erin Miller, and she says, There's been a lot of debate about America not taking in Syrian refugees. What should the candidate's position be on moving military interpreters and other people who worked for, assisted, uh, and are vouchsafed by our troops to the front of the refugee lines. This seems to have bipartisan support, liberals for humanitarian reasons, and military leaders and Republicans like John McCain also highly support this. Veterans are by far the biggest supporters of wanting to help those who have saved them many times and whose lives and families are in jeopardy. 
how do we make this a bigger issue and make future collaborators know that we will honor our word to them in exchange for their help? Beth, would you like to take first answer here? I think that our humanitarian obligations as a country cannot be overstated. I think the most important immigration reform work that we need to do is around our humanitarian efforts. Um, I think we should absolutely make a home for people who have kept our troops alive and safe overseas. And I, I think that the first thing to do about this is to give the president with the authorization of Congress a much bigger um, world of discretion around bringing in humanitarian refugees. I think that process should be expedited where someone has assisted our military. They've proven their loyalty to the United States in that process. You know, we should not put them through year-long, in some cases, multi-year processes to come into our country. We should absolutely serve and support people who have served and supported us. I mean, think about the courage that it takes to, in some ways, betray your own country to assist the United States. It's, it is our obligation to treat those people um, fairly and well and with open arms. So I have absolutely no disagreement with that. The undercurrent, though, sort of bothers me of this, this situation in that, I don't know, I feel like if helping refugees from a war-torn part of the country is the right thing to do, then it's the right thing to do and treating um, people as sort of more important if they're useful to us is a slippery slope into what we've talked about before on the show, which is we need to be nice to Muslims because they could help us fight terrorism. And I don't really want to do that. I don't want to go down that road. Like, I think obviously, you know, if they have uh, – you know, I'm, I'm not arguing that if they've, they've helped us, we shouldn't help them back. But I just feel like, you know, I don't know if I want a 25-year-old military interpreter put in front of a family of eight who never, you know, with young children who maybe didn't help us. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that. If the need is there because of the country, then we need to respond based on the need of that person and that family and I guess I'm not saying that, you know, their role in our military affairs shouldn't play, shouldn't be something we consider. But um, I just think that that is a worrisome way to view people when it's really about their circumstances that matter and helping them and not how they've helped us, if that makes sense. Understanding and appreciating everything that you just said, Sarah. I think that we unfortunately cannot lift entire countries of people over to the United States. There are there are some limitations on our ability to take in refugee populations. Um, and so I think that there is always going to be a line and that putting people at the front of that line who've helped our military is important. I also think that the vetting process can be expedited for those people. I mean, it is important to be sure that we're thinking about our national security as we accept new populations into the country and where we have seen some one's willingness to put their own safety at risk for uh, for us. I, I think that we should be able to expedite the process that we would put them through to come over to the United States. Well, we're going to uh, have a few more questions here and then we'll start to wrap it up, but it wouldn't be a presidential debate if we didn't talk about ISIS. So in your opinion, I have a couple of questions here. What do you think has gone right? What do you think has gone wrong? And where do we move forward? Sarah, would you like to take this one first, please? I think 
I'm going to say something shocking. Let's be real. Can y'all hear my hesitation and how badly I do not enjoy talking about foreign policy versus domestic policy? It's not that I don't think it's important. It's just my least favorite thing to talk about, mainly because I don't feel like I'm super informed about it, but I tried my best for y'all. I really did. I agree with Rand Paul. He came to Paducah recently, and he I asked him um, what his thoughts were on Syria, and he said basically that ISIS, while scary, is small, and the uh, leaders, the, the country surrounding the um, sort of center point of action have militaries much, much larger than ISIS's capabilities. And so I just think it's always important. And I think Rand Paul's talked to this, and I think Barack Obama has spoken to this with ISIS, which is to sort of keep our perspective in check that even though they are very good at social media and radicalizing, and that is scary, and the terrorism that they are able to perpetuate in other areas of the world is exactly that, terrorizing. ISIS itself is small, and I don't think that we need to blow our response to them out of proportion to their actual threat. So would, so would you say that the current, the current response by the Obama administration has been sufficient to quell the, the national security fears of voters? Well, I don't know if there would be anything sufficient to quell the national security fears of voters. I think it's scary, and we're all scared, but fear is not the only requirement to a military response, right? I mean, I think that none of us think that we should all make military strategic decisions based on you know, a majority poll after a terror event. Like, I just don't think that that is a smart strategy. I think there's a lot of information we don't have um, and that we need to be smart and think long-term and not keep um, reacting, even though it is a very tempting psychological response. Beth, where do you stand on the current administration's response to ISIS and, and possibly any ways to improve or, or differ from, from its response? I think the Obama administration has done a good job in limiting the physical territory that ISIS can acquire. I think that our understanding of ISIS, at least initially, was that the the goal was to establish a physical caliphate of land, and the Obama administration has pretty successfully held that off. I think the problem in our approach to ISIS in the Middle East in general is the lack of a clear and comprehensive strategy. When you try to draw a map showing where the United States stands with respect to all Middle Eastern conflicts, your head spins. And it is a complex region, but we've made it more so by funding um, funding rebels here and funding a regime there. It, you, you can't tell who are the good guys and the bad guys in the Middle East. And I understand that it's never going to be as simple as good and bad in the Middle East, but we need to pull back and decide what our objectives are in the Middle East. And we need to explain those objectives to the American people. We need our Congress to then authorize the use of military force in the Middle East. We are fighting unauthorized wars like crazy over there. And because of that, our veterans don't end up getting the support that they need 
from the American people. You know, we have a huge problem right now of being completely disconnected from what we're sending our family members overseas to do. So I think taking a step back and saying, what are we really trying to do instead of just reacting to the crisis of the day in the Middle East is very important. I think getting clear on what our alliances are and what they aren't is important. And then I think coming to the American people and doing our very best to present a clear, concise strategy and then having our Congress authorize that strategy is the next step. You know, foreign policy is a tricky area to talk about. I really enjoy talking about it and would have loved to go a little bit deeper in this episode because I think, and you know, I said this when we talked about the Commander-in-Chief Forum, this is an aspect of the job that is so vital and it's really not all that partisan. And so there isn't a shorthand way to get to know how someone would approach the role of Commander-in-Chief. I think that's something that you really have to get to know a person to fully understand. All right. Well, that um, we're going to leave ISIS alone for a little bit, um, and we're going to do a couple of questions on climate change. Um, this is something that one of our listeners, Stephanie, uh, had a special question for. And Beth, this is directed for you. As a moderate Republican with a science background, I'm frustrated that climate change has largely been ignored during this election. Why is this not a more prominent issue? What can be done to bring this topic into the mainstream? And I would assume that her question was framed with respect to the Republican Party, um, because the climate change has been a platform issue for both Democratic candidates. Um, So maybe you can speak to the representation of climate change as a central issue in the in the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party has uh, conflated the identification of a problem with solutions to that problem. And because we have historically objected to the solutions proffered by the Democratic Party, we've tried to deny the problem. You know, climate change is a reality. Man-made climate change is a reality. I don't think that we need to deny the science any longer, and I think we need to start putting our solutions on the table. If there were a law, a single law, that could combat climate change effectively within even five generations, I would sign on for that law immediately. I don't think that that's the case. I think this is a problem that we came to the game too late on. I think all of the studies show that what we can do here in the United States doesn't even make a dent. Um, But that doesn't mean that we don't try. I think we just have to try in a way that, again, creates some opportunity instead of limiting opportunity. A lot of the solutions that we hear from the Democratic Party are let's stop this solutions, right? Let's stop drilling. Let's stop certain uses of oil. Um, I think we need to look at climate change as an opportunity to subsidize innovation in the United States, to provide some leadership from the federal government, to, uh, again, look at best practices across different industries and spread ideas. We can work toward sustainable energy initiatives in a way that unleashes all kinds of jobs and um, economic prosperity in the United States. I think we just, because we see solutions being offered from Democrats that limit economic prosperity, we're rightfully concerned about those. But that doesn't mean the problem doesn't exist. Well, with with your, your stance and sort of uh, propping up the private sector to kind of, uh, you know, unleash some of these clean energy jobs, and I know you've talked about that before, um, do you take issue with some some candidates in your party at the congressional level and at the presidential level who continue to sort of have a reliance on propping up 
coal and and some some energy sources that are frankly um, you know not clean anymore and also just leaving our workforce because of other factors because of innovation because of automation because of uh, the the emergence of natural gas but it, it doesn't seem like party leaders have really shifted that focus because they're afraid to leave voters behind I really one question I regret I had a great question written up about climate change more from an economic standpoint of uh, the U.S. increasing spending in clean energy sources um, and renewable energy sources, but still lagging behind almost, uh, well, rich nations lagging behind developing nations in terms of clean energy investment by a pretty good margin. I wish I would have phrased the question that way because I think it would have led to, a, a, I, I, I took it to a place of like, oh, this is coal versus clean energy. And, and that's not really where I wanted that question to go. Um, but it but it kind of went there. And, and once we were there in, in that space and kind of when the bullets were flying live, it was tough for me to back out of it. I think this is an example of how we think in binary terms all the time. You're either pro-coal or against coal. You know, I think that's not the case. I think we need a transition period. I think we need to understand that right now we still rely on some sources of energy that do tremendous damage to our environment, but we rely on them and we're not ready to shut the lights off on that. We're not ready to shut the lights off either in terms of our consumption of those resources or on the people who depend on those industries for their livelihoods. So I think we need a transition plan. And I think that's a lot of hard work. And I think that that is something that we ought to be able to get a bipartisan coalition formed around. Um, I don't think this is a situation situation where coal is bad and green initiatives are good. I think it's how do we develop a runway that moves us forward on this topic in a responsible and ultimately successful way. Sarah, what would you say to people, uh, to voters especially, that feel like they've been vilified in the clean energy versus um, non-sustainable energy resource debate, especially people that have been vilified or feel that they've been vilified by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama specifically. I live in Kentucky. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. Um, So I don't think that that, I think that is an easy out, but the problem with coal is not Barack Obama. It's natural gas that it has created. Natural gas is cheaper. The market is doing the damage to coal. And I think that I've I've been thinking a lot about the tragedy of the commons. And I just don't know what the conservative response to that is. I don't know what the answer is with regards to these huge environmental problems that we have and that are getting worse. Because for me, you need an outside source to enforce the rules of the commons i.e. the federal government, because to depend on private industry to do that is sort of the definition of the tragedy of the commons. Well, we'll just depend on everybody to do the right thing and protect our air and our water and um, get us toward a sustainable future. And it's not working. We're not getting there. And we're not getting there fast enough. And we're going to have entire parts of this country that are already underwater under just a little bit of rain. And so I think that this problem is getting worse 
and we need big solutions that come from and a government that's not trying to turn a profit and is not trying to pop it prop up an industry that is dying and you know I'm not that's not to say that I don't agree that we should just you know I, I agree that we shouldn't just abandon whole areas of the country that have depended on this um, these industries but you know we're also not smart about pushing when we push natural gas into other areas of the country it's not like we're smart about that it's not about like oh well let's make sure we don't make the same mistakes we made in coal country no let's exploit it you know, let's take everything we can and leave the people in the dust. So I just don't think, I don't think that with regards to these huge industries, de- you know, depending on doing the right thing. And I'm not forcing into a binary that it's all regulation or nothing, but I just, I don't know what the solution is to the, to that problem. Well, we've, we've seen a, a bit of a confluence of some of those interests with the recent, um, the recent events with the Dakota Access Pipeline. And three federal agencies, the Justice Department, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the Department of the Interior halted construction on the pipeline um, for further investigation into claims that the Standing Rock Sioux, which is a native population, um, that they would disturb lands of cultural importance for their tribe and possibly contaminate drinking water from the Missouri River. And it's largely been seen as a clash between like you were just saying, the interests of private corporation, uh, government intervention and protection and private citizenry. So what are your thoughts on on the government's role in managing those interests and how you'd prioritize them to prevent more harmful clashes like this in the future? Well, I think the first issue with particularly the Dakota Pipeline is we cannot um, fool ourselves into thinking that this is just a discussion about private citizens and our government. These are Indian nations. This is a whole nother ball game. These people have their own um, sacred lands and fundamental rights as citizens of these Indian nations. And we, just because we've broken every treaty we've signed with the Indians since God was a boy, doesn't mean that we should continue to do that. And this is an opportunity to for the federal government to do right by a population that we've basically never done right by. And so I, I think that that's, you know, there is a discussion to be had and a very important one about private citizens and public need and with regards to any of these pipelines. But, you know, for me, with regards to this situation, this is this is a special situation with a special population and with a long and tragic history of being mistreated by both private industry and the federal government. And we cannot allow that to continue. Beth, do you think that this would, would be, wouldn't be the issue that it is without the possibility of the dangling carrot of contaminated drinking water, given what we've seen in Flint this past two years? Well, I think the situation is illustrative of why I so strongly disagree with Sarah's entrusting of the federal government to manage um, our environmental and sort of renewable resources and business balance. Because with great respect for the tribe involved here, I I think that it is extremely problematic for the administration now that this has become an embarrassing public issue to step in and halt what has been years and billions of dollars of work 
on on this project. I don't know how we can ask anyone to invest in the infrastructure of our country if there is a danger of a political reason coming up to halt all of that investment's um, execution. So I think what this particular situation speaks to is a need for a different process on the front end. Rather than stopping this project now, I think we need to look back and say, what did the notice and comment period look like? What kind of consultation was done with the with the Sioux Nation? You know, I, I don't want to be trampling on the rights of, of these independent Native American nations. I think that we have a huge, just zooming out, I think we have a huge issue as to land ownership in the American West that we need to deal with in a very comprehensive fashion. So there are access issues into the process that we need to explore. But I also think that it is a big, big problem for the federal government after a federal judge has denied uh, the request of the Sioux Nation for the administration to unilaterally come in and stop this project when four states and thousands of people and billions of dollars have gone into its investment. I, I, I think that is a very, very dangerous precedent. I do think it's getting attention because of the Flint water crisis. Um, and, and again, that speaks to we, we, we need predictability in our economic investments and we need to do those right and we need to get them right on the front end. We need to invest in the right projects out of the gate, but then we don't need uh, the political winds blowing in one direction or another as people are in the middle of something and almost finished with it. Um, I, I think this is, I think the Obama administration's response on this is well intended, but very problematic. I have Sorry. a response. Go ahead. I, I disagree. I mean, I think that maybe the issue with regards to this problem is private industry building our infrastructure. You know, I just think that this isn't like this is a some private, you know, a contractor that it, the federal government hired to do this. This is private industry seeking another source of profit. And, you know, I don't know the history that goes back enough, but I know enough about the guy behind this company that I'm have a feeling it started under the Bush administration and they're incredibly forgiving corporate initiatives and corporate um Initiatives. I don't, I'm trying to think of the word I want. So I, I don't know. I just think that I'm skeptical of this idea of, well, private industry isn't going to be building our infrastructure if they have to worry about the shifting political winds. I don't want private industry building our infrastructure for just these reasons. I don't want their drive for profit to, you know, wreak havoc over the public trust that it, that with regards to lands and infrastructure, and I know that that is a long, drawn-out process. And I know back in the day, we just threw up railroads and dams, and it was great, and it went really quickly. But people were discriminated against and lost their lives in massive, you know, health hazards too. So I don't go back to that either. Indentured it's a, servitude. Yeah, I mean, it was indentured. Like it's, it was a long, slow process. It will continue to be. If we want to do it right, it'll continue to be a long, slow process. But for me. You know, the problem isn't that, oh, poor these billion dollar gas pipeline guys who, you know, were trying to make more money and now these Indians are putting a chink in their plans. It, to me, it's that this wasn't this wasn't the proper balance between private and public to begin with. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's because if. I'm being massively stereotypical here and making some assumptions, but I don't think it was because the you know the obama administration was giving texas pipeline billionaires an unfair advantage 
Just a guess. I, ha- I have to respond. Um, I, profit is not evil. You know, and we have decided in a lot of these conversations that a profit motive always leads to a bad result. And very often that's not the case. You, Sarah, talked about how what is shutting down coal more effectively than anything else is the profitability of the natural gas industry. You know, that has some positives attached to it. The market works well when the market is allowed to work. When you have the government controlling things like this, you get a massive investment in ethanol that's going nowhere and has been for the longest time. But we can't get out of it because the public factors involved are are so strong, the interest there, it's so it's such a difficult thing to exit once you start subsidizing an interest an industry that just doesn't work. So I think that there is always going to be an element of public interest and private interest around infrastructure. I think that state by state we have a lot of good public private partnerships happening around around revitalizing our infrastructure, which we desperately need to do. But to massively expand the federal government to control all of our energy resources and all of our infrastructure when our federal government can't even pass a budget year to year is something that I'm not prepared to get behind. Well, Can I have a rebuttal? Can I have a quick rebuttal? Y- yes, so you may. So I, I see what you're The thing is, though, that it goes back to the tragedy of the common. Profit is, isn't evil. But when profit is your legally obligated number one goal, you get situations like the drug policy, the war on drugs, isn't just a... It's not just the result of government crime policy. It is also the result of a private pharmaceutical industry and it's dry for profits putting out a drug they knew didn't last as long as it was supposed to and people got addicted to it and now we have this massive opiate addiction and private industry is responsible for that too and they're dry for profit their legal obligation to profit a share share of responsibility a share share of responsibility responsibility. and so like sometimes it is and if your drive if your legal obligation is profit then who is looking out for the commons Private industry did not create our military complex. Private industry, it contributed to it. It contributed to it, but our public programs have created the warehousing of people in our prison systems. The, the massive expansion of foreign military aid. So it's not like one side or the other always gets it right. And no, that's I, why I, I think a there. balance of interest is important. And, and I just think that the idea of completely assuming that profit has no place in our analysis of the commons and what's good for people. There are companies that are legally obligated to have a profit motive for their shareholders that do good in the world that they're not required to do all of the time. Absolutely. So giving 100% of the benefit of the doubt on the public side and none on the private side is the part of this discussion that so alienates people who want to invest dollars in our economy. Whew, got a little heated in that section. I think that it's we're really getting down to the fundamentals of what Beth and I disagree with for all of you who complain that we don't disagree to we don't agree to we don't disagree enough. There it is right there. Um, who are we trusting with the common good? And you know, as is the nuanced way, we don't have to pick one side or the other in every situation, you know, as a blanket rule from here to the end of time. But it's important to have both sides at the table for sure that feel differently. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, 
And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. No, I absolutely agree, but I think it's you're, it's rare that you're going to find a situation you know, it, it Tom's shoes, it helps their profits be good. You know, do do don't be evil, Google. All these things like these companies that have these great pop reputations for doing good. Let's not fool ourselves that it also helps their profit margin. I'm sorry, we're getting off topic. I'm, Which no, again, it's, it's is a okay. good thing. Yeah, but I I just think that with when we're driven for me, I think that there has to be and do I think that our political system right now is fully responsive to the commons and the people? No, it's messed up and it's not doing a great job all the time either. But at the end of the day, I want the people without the profit margin, without the sky's the limit, where can I go, looking out for the common good. As flawed as it might be and as cracked as the system might per- currently be, 
I still trust those people looking out for the common good than the people legally obligated to turn a profit. Even if sometimes it does work out for the common good. I don't know. And I want the people who know how to do this and do it well and do it um, in a way that evolves and that transforms with time to be able to do it. But let's not pretend that private companies do that all the time, that private companies don't follow profit down a hole and aren't corrupt and aren't not adaptable and die. Where Blockbuster go? I don't know. You know, like that happens, too. That's right. But those companies die and, and our government doesn't. Oh, sections of this remind me of conversations that my husband and I have all the time where we're like, why is no one competent? Because that's the real conclusion here, that neither the public or nor the private sector gets things right all the time. And it's just really about on a gut level, what do you trust more? Well, both of you have Thank just goodness. brought up a, a <laughs> litany of points uh, to be contended on the size and the scope and the... Um, power of our government. So that brings us really nicely to our last questions of the night. And these have been submitted by Bryn and they are specifically directed at each How of you. appropriate. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice little nice little bow tie on our on our first trial run of the great redhead debate. So first question is going to be specifically for Beth. Is there a state level government program or issue that you think should be moved to the federal level for national consistency? And just so we're fair, for Sarah also you'll get the chance to answer, is there a federal government program that you think should be dismantled and left for the individual states to handle? And personally, I think these are great questions and uh, Beth, I'll let you take the first answer. So I've already touched on this tonight. I think licensing is an issue that we really need to start to look at at the federal level because I think the ability of people to move freely among our United States is critically important. And I think that's in part a key to making sure that we have skill sets that match opportunities in the United States. So where states have these very protective and restrictive licensing requirements for different professions, I think we need to have a national conversation about what our standards are and how we can start to alleviate some of that burden on our workforce. Sarah? That's a tough one. So I I don't know if there's one that's not currently doing this, but I would like to, because we are, you know, Kentucky did this until it was dismantled by our current governor. I think that taking um, Medicaid and giving the states the power to expand that and to adapt it more completely to their state's populations and needs is a good idea as opposed to, you know, having it run all from the federal government level. I think it worked well in Kentucky. Um, Hasn't worked so well in my home state of Florida, but Ah. it probably has a lot to do with our governor. So, But see, that's, you know, and that's always my struggle. This is what I sort of said at the beginning is, you know, we talk about this, the states, the states. But are we talking about Connecticut or Mississippi? Because are we talking about Texas or North Dakota, you know, like the every state is so different and every state's resources are so different and talking about shifting with the political winds like that's so and I understand that that's an argument for adaptability, but that's also an argument for huge swaths of our country getting their rights denied or left behind because their states don't have the resources or the political will to solve their problems. Well, Guys, I really, really thank you both for putting a huge amount of work and a huge amount of effort and thought and just unbelievable response into this debate. 
Uh, thank you especially to all of our amazing listeners who submitted so many questions. And uh, we promise that, you know, if your question didn't get asked tonight, we are going to really try and find um, some thoughtful and creative ways to use the questions that were submitted for our content going forward. Because, you know, what was asked tonight was only a fraction of what we received. And unfortunately, there's just not enough time in the day for us to sit around and debate. I think I received somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 questions for this debate. So um, big bravo to the listeners. Big bravo to you, Sarah and you, Beth. And um, I I had a real fun time listening to all your thoughts and even got a little spirited there at the end. That was exciting. Hey, (laughs) you know. Do you want to do closing remarks? Sure. Why don't we do like oh, a I don't have thir- closing remarks, but sure, I'll go. You go first. I'll thir- make it up. 30 seconds each. Why don't we do that? Well, thank you so much to Sarah and to Dante. I uh, always enjoy participating in this exchange of ideas. What I will say is that everything that we discuss matters only to the extent that we have a function in Congress. And that's my number one objective going into the Oval Office is to get our Congress working again. I'll judge my success not by my own approval rating, but by Congress's approval rating during my term. So that's my commitment to you, and I hope to have your support in November. Sarah, your closing remarks? Uh, thank you to Dante for moderating our debate. Thank you to all our listeners for submitting questions. And, of course, thank you to Beth for participating. I think that the role of the president is to be the leader for every single person in this country. And that is my concern, is that not only are you represented, but that you're not left behind, that certain parts of the country don't fly high while everybody else suffers in the ditches. And as your president, I will strive every day to be a president for every person in this country, no matter your circumstances, and to use my power as the president and the power of your federal government to make that happen. I got fired up. That was exciting. Towards the end, I think you did a great job, Dante. I, I listen. I have a newfound respect for the people that do this. Like, you know, on on like with live bullets flying because man it's really hard because you want to jump in and you want to like ask a follow-up question or like stop somebody when they when you want to like pivot but it's really hard because you guys give like thoughtful and clear and like just great answers i think i hope listeners love this because i thought it was awesome oh good yay (laughs) on sitting on my end i'm like man this if our if our real debates were like this, we would get so much further. And I think what will be great for listeners is there was a lot of contention and a lot of like real differences in terms mm-hmm. of like your ideologies that came out tonight, which I don't think, you know, happens all the time. But I think this is a unique time where you guys can really sink in into your kind of um the way you both view government and really express that. And I think that's going to come out to the listeners for sure, especially at the end, like the last 30 minutes got into like a real nice, like rhythm of, okay, this is the conservative viewpoint and this is the, you know, liberal democratic viewpoint and how those things kind of just bounce off of each other. I hope that happened without it feeling like, devolving into the party's talking points though you know that's what I hate about watching actual debates where you feel like you could just predict what someone's going to say before it's said you know so I I hope that we didn't 
go so I don't think so. I think we owned it in a way they never do. The Democrats online are always too busy to set being like, no, no, we love business. And the Republicans are too busy being say, being like, no, we're not going to take away your Social Security. You know what I mean? They're like too busy trying to convince, particularly, well, maybe who knows what these presidential debates are going to be like, but usually trying to get to the center too much to be like, you know what? No, I don't think that. Like, you know, let's own this side of the territory we're in. I wonder yeah. how this will come across, like, since it's an audio-only format, because I'm so used to taking questions in front of groups of people in settings where, like, what I say is much less important than the way I say it mm. and sort of my demeanor as I say mm. it. And mm. I feel like with the audio format, what you say matters a lot more than the way you say you it. You can tell because Beth is, like, sitting so calmly. I'm playing with my bangs. I'm rocking back and forth. Like, it's, I'm struggling. Yeah, again, I'm struggling to sit still here, y'all. But it's, but it's also great because you don't, you only are judged on the content of what you said. You're not judged by body language. You know, like Beth was sipping her water. You were playing with your bangs. Like if you're on TV, you've got a litany of people on Twitter saying like, oh, how disrespectful. She just played with her hair. (laughs) Does she even want to be there? She just took a sip out of her drink. You know, that stupid stuff that really doesn't matter because it's just being a human being, like standing in one place for an hour and a half is not a normal thing to do. They <laughs> should do a, a podcast presidential debate and just let us really hone in on kind of where people are. No, that stresses me out. I'm always afraid Beth's going to be mad at me. Why would I've never gotten mad at you about anything. Why I would know, you but say this that? Is like, this was the most contentious that we've talked about it and it just makes me nervous. I don't know. I don't feel like I was not contentious. I mean, I we, we're very, I think this format illustrates that we're just like super different people in terms of our styles and I think we mm-hmm. would be hugely different presidents you know because of our styles and so I, I think it's kind of cool like I just feel like we both approach this in ways that were really like authentic to ourselves I feel like it was and John I feel like it was like John Huntsman's John Huntsman versus Ann Richards that's what I feel like it's like if those see, two were in a debate a, <laughs> I was getting a more a Lennon McCartney vibe <laughs> If there's one thing I'd want the listeners to take away and appreciate from this event is, you know, Beth and Sarah put a tremendous amount of work into this show. Um, they they care about it deeply. They care about about you, the listeners, deeply, and they treated this with every bit of weight and gravity that you know you would expect from somebody running for office. Um, I really I really believe that they they put. A ton of time into it and hopefully that shows um and hopefully that that's something that you know comes through when you guys listen to this episode i hope that you know how hard dante worked on this as he said we got over 70 questions from listeners which is amazing and they were all thoughtful great questions i can't wait to see all of them Uh, we had them sort of embargoed because we didn't want to prejudice ourselves in any way Sarah and I wanted to take these on the fly but Dante did a terrific job and this is another situation that illustrates how having another team member is going to allow us to do things that the two of us plus our husbands just couldn't swing on our own. We really hope that you enjoyed listening to this debate as much as we enjoyed putting it together. It was a totally different experience than creating a typical episode for you. As always, your feedback means the world to us, and we take it seriously and want to be responsive to it. So please let us know what you thought, substance, format, who you're voting for, whatever. 
Uh, We appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for giving us this thoughtful community in which to experiment and talk about great ideas. We hope you heard some things here that made you think this is how a debate should be among our presidential candidates. So we'll be back with another episode on Friday. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Bye.